Before we start, the following episode of Gayish is about drug and alcohol addiction and recovery. There is frank discussion and occasionally jokes about drug use, self-harm, suicidal ideation, sexual assault, and family trauma. If that is something you prefer not to hear, or if there's any possibility that will be a trigger for you in any way, we suggest you please skip this episode. If you or someone in your life is impacted by substance abuse or dependency, including alcoholism or drug addiction, we have a list of resources available on our website at gayishpodcast.com recovery. And now, enjoy Gayish. When you know that you are queer, but your favorite drink is beer, that's Gayish. You can bottom without stopping, but you can't stand going shopping, that's Gayish. Oh, gayish, you're probably gayish. Well, life's just too short for narrow stereotypes, so oh, it's gayish. We're also gayish. It's gayish with Mike and Kyle. Hello, everyone in the podcast universe. This is gayish, the podcast that thinks if your erection lasts more than four hours, call me. Uh, I'm Mike Johnson, and we're here to bridge the gap between sexuality and actuality. And today I'm here with fucking Dan. How's it going? It's going great. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, today we're going to talk about recovery. Yeah. Kyle's on assignment. Yeah. He'll be back. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> um, You're not stuck with me for long. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about recovery, and we're mostly doing that by letting other people tell us their stories, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have three really great guests. Yeah. Um, really, you got the guests. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean... I'm sleeping with one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, it's your 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 boyfriend Bobby. Boyfriend Bobby. Yep. Uh, a friend of yours, uh, Danny. Yep. And then um, drag queen extraordinaire Ms. Honey Bouquet. Uh, and no news today because there's there's a lot to get through. Yeah. Should, should, should we take a break? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did we do it? No, yeah, we did it. We did it. We did it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's take a break then. Let's take a break. Let's, let's go into recovery. <laughs> this is the part where Mike and Kyle take a break. Are we back? <laughs> We're back. <laughs> I guess I guess. I we don't know if do that's that. a, yeah. <laughs> uh, We are here with boyfriend Bobby. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hello, my name is Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm glad you did it and I didn't have to like try to get you to do that. It's, it's standard. It's been, you know... 13 years of doing it now uh, so yeah. i'm supposed to say hi bobby right after that Isn't yes that? okay great yes. <laughs> um we'll do better with the next guest <laughs> right out of the gate let's do just like how do you identify gender sexual orientation your pronouns that kind of stuff yeah uh so for the sake of brevity like uh sexual identity wise i just say gay um it's probably a little more complicated like that but that'd be like a whole other fucking episode okay. so um yeah we'll just we'll just go gay okay um and then as far as sobriety goes um i do i so i've been sober for it'll be 13 years on june 10th mm -hmm. um and for me what that means is i don't use alcohol i don't use drugs uh weed included in mm -hmm there for me um and yeah that's i we've sort of or it, they, there's sort of these ideas of like west coast sober where people smoke weed and stuff like that but for mm -hmm. me for me sober is whatever you define it as for you and so for me i smoked weed the exact same way i smoked meth so like you know there for me smoking weed was not a good thing it led to uh really bad things for me every single time so i i also include that in my sobriety i've neglected to do that for 13 years now so okay 
you said the, the exact same way you smoke meth, like like through your mouth, you mean, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, through my mouth. No, okay. um, I mean, it, it, for me, any time that I used any substance, it would be all consuming. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the first time I smoked weed and like really got high, like I was like, oh, I want to do this mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. And it was the same with pretty much every drug. Like when I tried Coke for the first time, I was like, yeah, we're, we're fucking doing this. Yeah. Um, meth, uh, you know, downers I never got quite as into, like, which is such a, like, gay stereotype. Like, I just wanted to be up, 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 going, 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 going all the time. Um, and then, yeah, booze too, especially. I, it, it was funny, actually, my last year and a half or so of getting loaded, I initially was drinking, thinking, oh, if I drink and don't do drugs, like, I'll be, I'll be okay, right? And towards the end of it, I started doing drugs again to get off drinking. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I sort of, I sort of hate the phrase because I think that it sort of makes light of people that have actual struggles with addiction. But would you say you have an addictive personality? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, as far as any anything that gives me a rush, I'm going to be into it, right? Mm-hmm. So whether that's online shopping, mm-hmm. whether that's video games, I mean, I definitely tend to lean towards the more addictive side of things. In fact, um, I just actually had to completely remove a video game like from my phone and my computer because I've like tried to manage it and yeah. just be like, I'll just play like one game real quick. And then the next thing I know, it's six hours later. I haven't done any of my responsibilities. And I'm just like, well, I just got to do one more. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to play World of Warcraft with us? It'll ruin your life. I'm good. Well, OK, so let's 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 talk about recovery. The name of the episode is recovery. Yeah. And and I I'm not sure I even know like what that means. And maybe it's because it's a sort of personal definition or personal meaning like I've heard recovery is something that you're never done with. I've heard that recovery is, is synonymous with sobriety. Uh, how, how, what, is, what does recovery mean to you in your world? Um, so it, and you know, like you said, I think it is something that is personal to everyone. I think for me, there has to be a component to recovery of working on yourself and Mm -hmm. continuing to try to sort of better yourself. I mean, I think that is why one aspect of why 12 step programs are successful is because you are constantly working on yourself when you're doing those programs, you're constantly taking inventory of your wrongdoing and your shortcomings and trying to go out to people and make amends for things you've done wrong. Um, And so, you know, for me, I'm in sort of a little bit of a space where I'm kind of stepping away from 12-step programs, Mm. but I still consider myself in recovery. I'm still reaching out to, you know, other friends as resources for when I'm not doing well or when I, you know, think I need to be doing something in my life better, um, whether that's, you know, relationship stuff or if I'm not showing up well in a relationship or not showing up well at work. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, recovery is sort of this nebulous term. I, I think you can talk to people in 12-step programs who are like really hardcore about it mm-hmm. and they just sort of equate recovery to sobriety and they're like, 
well, are, are you actually sober? Are you working a program and working with a sponsor and sponsees? And I, I kind of like a little bit looser definition to it mm. of like, you know, I don't ingest drugs anymore. I don't ingest alcohol anymore. And I'm working to better myself, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, for so. sure. So in, in your personal philosophy, then there's no such thing as recovered. It's it, it, it's a it's a, a forever thing. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, as, as far as I'm concerned, it, it is something that, you know, it, you need to work or, uh, that I need to work on for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing with recovery that is sort of good to think about is it's not always necessarily a linear thing, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't necessarily just like get sober and stay sober, you know, one year at a time or one day at a time forever after like people relapse, you know, people, people slip up. And sometimes a relapse is really important to someone's recovery because they figure out something that, you know, they weren't doing right or some behavior that they needed to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's really important important as addicts and alcoholics that we don't get too down on ourselves about some things like that and like yeah you know it's it's great that i have all this time sober right at the same time i think it's important that the guy who has a week sober he's doing just as fucking good as i am Mm. in my opinion like it i i I think time is just sort of you know it it really is just a number in a lot of cases Mm. so I have also met guys who are like 30 years sober, who are the biggest fucking assholes I have ever met in my life. And I would not like anything to do with them versus I've met guys who only have a couple months sober who I'm like, this guy fucking gets it. Are are they assholes about sobriety or in general? They just suck as people. Just in general, (laughs) suck as people. Not great. Yeah. Yeah. I've been waiting to make the connection, but like you, you are part of uh, fucking Dan's polycule. Like that's, that's how we have the connection to the show and and why we we know you. And I know that a lot of the polycule drinks and I, I assume does drugs also, which maybe says something about like my pessimism about, about the universe that I just assume like get enough gays together. There's, there's drugs at some point, but, um, there's, a, there's some weed smokers or, or, or edible consumers in the polycule for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, how do you, how do you handle that? Is that, is that tough? Is that okay? What, what What's that experience like for you? It's honestly completely fine at this point. I mean, it, it's funny in early sobriety, I, definitely found that I connected more easily with other people who were in the program Mm -hmm. but it was also kind of weird right because I wasn't really out when I was very early in sobriety and so I dated a lot of women in early sobriety and it was this funny thing of like you know I I dated this one guy for a little bit kind of on the down low who's a huge pothead and super super sweet guy but just didn't really feel a connection to him and I, I think part of it was just that I was still so newly sober and kind of trying to figure things out. And so, yeah, I felt, I felt a lot more connected to the women I was dating because they were also sober. Um, but as, as the years have gone on, I, I feel, I feel like in early sobriety, especially doing 12 step programs, there's part of you where, or there, I, I won't speak for anyone else. I should say there was this part of me that was like really trying to make that my identity and only surround myself with sober people. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of that is what you hear in there of like change, change the places you're hanging out, change the people you're hanging out with. But, 
the longer I've stayed sober, the, you know, the more connections I've made outside of like people from 12 step programs and have kind of, you know, grown out of that where I'm like, you know, I, I actually feel perfectly comfortable in spaces where there's alcohol. And so when, you know, I, uh, when my ex-wife and I split up, um, I started dating men and off apps, like not men in the program. And it, there's just never been an issue for mm-hmm. me with it. And I, I definitely feel like I've tended to gra- uh, gravitate towards men who have somewhat similar backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I know, Dan, I won't speak for you, but I, <laughs> I know you've got some experience in this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to tease the Patreon segment for this episode, I'm going to talk about my recovery and that I, I I may have some different opinions on whether you can be recovered. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Fair. Yeah. There you go. Tune in for that, everybody. <laughs> and I'll answer the question that everybody is on everyone's minds. Yes, when Bobby fists me, I use poppers. <laughs> <laughs> and and I believe the quote from you when I asked if it was okay, you're like, yeah, if you want a headache, go ahead. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, if I ever write a memoir, in fact, I'm just going to title it Secondhand Poppers, <laughs> like the journey through hooking up as a sober gay man. So, yeah, I buy, I'd read that book. Absolutely. <laughs> let's fucking do it. Yeah. Um, let's talk about poppers. I I got to be honest. I didn't even till right this very second think about poppers as being something to avoid as a sober person. So are there are there other things that people might not think of right away that like are are on your list of things to avoid? Um, I mean, there's definitely, I feel like there's some more obvious things. Like out you're there. drinking a cup of coffee, for instance, which like, yeah. you know, I think that some people would say caffeine is an addictive substance that they would want to stay away from. So I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to get you dialed in, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. No. Um, and it, it's funny too. Dan teased me right before we started this conversation about the fact that I was off coffee not that long ago. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but you know, I, I think, again, it's up to the individual to decide sort of what works and doesn't work for them. But there's definitely some obvious things out there in my mind, right? Like there was a little bit where people were kind of doing Kratom, if you guys are familiar with what that stuff is. But it's it's essentially a store bought. Um, is that like bath salts? Kratom? <laughs> is it a T? Yeah. K-R-A-T-O-M? Yes. It's from the coffee plant family, popularity in the natural health community for pain relieving properties to elevate mood. It uh, has 40 active compounds. The main ones are mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine, and those uh, act on receptors in the brain causing similar effects to stimulants and opioid pain relievers, depending on the dosage. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So anyways, so Kratom was this gray area drug for a while that some people in recovery communities started kind of using and probably realizing or maybe not realizing that it had a sort of opioid-like effect to it. Hmm. Um, So there there are some substances, some over-the-counter substances like that, where I'm just kind of like, yeah, you probably shouldn't use Kratom. You know what I mean? And how about like CBD oil? That's kind of in the same zone, right? It's It's a marijuana byproduct, but it doesn't, it's not THC. It doesn't do the same 
Exactly. And, you know, I've I've actually used like CBD products before Mm -hmm. and haven't had any issues with them. Mm -hmm. And I think I think with weed, you know, especially with weed becoming legal, that was that was kind of an interesting thing in recovery circles, because all of a sudden you had all these people are like, well, it's legal now. I mean, that that's okay, Right. And I'm like, alcohol has been fucking legal this whole time. And you can still be a raging alcoholic. Um, And again, again, this is to the individual experience experience like i know people who have no problem with weed but have problems with other substances and so they can you know smoke weed without it being an issue i have also known people who were homeless purely from just smoking weed they Mm. weren't even doing any other drugs Mm. so Mm -hmm. so a a quick a quick pivot about your recovery journey you've already mentioned you, you've done like 12-step programs um did you, did you ever did you ever do rehab or anything like that <laughs> uh i did rehab five times actually okay so yeah no i'm i'm experienced yeah well and just to kind of delve into my story a, a little bit so um you know i i love this podcast for talking about it too because i feel like being gay is such a huge part of my story mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I I was a pretty weird kid. I was a pretty effeminate kid. Um, I got picked on quite a bit in middle school and started, you know, kind of listening to like metal music and wearing all black sort of in response to this and trying to be like a tough guy. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And then when I realized I am queer when I was 14, it was, I was gutted when i realized it because i was just like this is just one more fucking thing for you know people to target me for um and so i just stuffed it like way down like i was like i'm not gonna tell anybody about Mm. this and the next year getting into high school you know the third day of high school i was hanging out with these these guys who wound up becoming very close friends of mine in high school and we went and smoked weed together and i remember it was like the first time in so long that i felt comfortable on my own skin Mm. like Mm. it it, for me, it was like getting the keys to the kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, I don't feel like a dork anymore. Um, I feel funnier. You know what I mean? Like, I remember going to Jack in the Box with them, eating a cheeseburger and having a giant glob of mustard fall on my pants and laughing hysterically and everyone else did. Mm-hmm. And like, it was the funnest time I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. just doing that super high. Yeah. So I I immediately, I was like, I want to feel like this yeah. all the time. And probably a sense of acceptance, too, because you had your crew, right? Like, oh, immediate huge group of friends just by virtue of being a stoner all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And even some of the kids who used to bully me when I was in middle school and high school, suddenly we were hanging out and smoking weed together mm-hmm. and it was all good. You can be as general or specific as you want to. And, and like, w- w- where did you grow up? Like what, what, what kind of a place was it? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I grew up in Bellevue. Um, so I grew up in, you know, the suburbs and yeah. uh, the greater Seattle area. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We have we have people in fucking Australia that have no idea where Bellevue is. <laughs> fair, fair. Bellevue, Bellevue, Washington. Just to give your listeners yeah. a little heads up, it is like rich white suburban. Yep. I mean, like it it it's funny if you live in the greater Seattle area and you're from Bellevue or Kirkland, which is like the east side. You almost don't want to tell people because you know you're going to catch <laughs> some grief for it and just like, oh, rich kid, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. How's that trust fund holding up? Yeah. <laughs> 
that's, that's Great, sort of thanks. a that's the that's the yeah as someone who did not grow up on the east side uh, yeah. yeah but yeah no uh i i mean so like, like i said immediate acceptance immediate you know just i felt like everything flipped for me as soon as i started smoking weed and um as, as i said that is what i wanted to con- continue doing I also started drinking um, and was just a shit show of a drunk right mm. from the beginning. I mean, like the first time I got drunk, I drank way too much 100 proof vodka, mm. uh, passed out on my friend's bed and started puking in my sleep. Oh, um, oh yeah, it was it was rough. And yeah. like he woke me up and was like, dude, you got to you got to get the fuck out of my apartment. Mm. Um, so and, you know, got picked up my by my dad. And I'm like, I have food poisoning. Oh, dad. God. <laughs> He believed it. Did he? So, oh yeah. I was going to ask if he fell for that. <laughs> oh my! With, I mean, with my parents, it was like the first time they ever found a pipe in my backpack. Like I told him it was my friend Ben's, and I was holding on to it for him because he was trying to quit smoking weed. And then I had to invent like a whole other Ben just so mm-hmm. I could still hang out with my friend Ben. So yeah, no, not that Ben. The other Ben. Yeah, exactly. no, the other Ben. <laughs> oh no! The real great thing is in recovery circles. I met another Ben later and i was like that was him that's the ben he's, he's doing way better now great so yeah yeah but um no so uh anyways these these excuses started wearing pretty thin with my parents though fairly quickly and uh it all it, everything kind of came to a head with my parents when my very first summer job i used to work at fun forest in seattle uh if you guys remember that but it was an amusement park and Every single break, I would smoke weed with the uh, carnies who worked there. Mm -hmm. They weren't really carnies, but I like to call them that. (laughs) Um, But I got arrested on the job. A bunch of cops came around with some drug sniffing dogs while we were all like smoking. And I happened to be holding the pipe when they came. Wow. Tried to like shove it in my pants. It was super embarrassing, too, because they yanked me up and it was like a water pipe. And so all of the water spilled into my pants. (laughs) They were just like, like, did you just piss yourself dude i'm like no it's a water pipe but, it's, it's bong water does that make it better i don't know i don't, I don't know i don't know yeah just smell my pants man uh, with with that that was the first time that my parents you know got me in some sort of drug treatment program mm-hmm. which was outpatient and being the good little drug addict that i am i figured out anything i could do to still get high throughout the entire time i was in that thing so Mm -hmm. that that was actually where i started turning to other drugs because other drugs don't stay in your system as long and you can avoid drug tests and it actually started with like over the counter like my friends and i used to steal cough medicine okay um and because if you take enough uh i feel like i should probably shouldn't give too many instructions no, to no tips yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, if you do enough of this yeah um but anyways no we, I, we're gonna do another patreon segment it's like you're like boy, oh boy but anyways no so it 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 just sort of started growing from there of like my interest in other substances and then by by the time I was 16, I mean, it was clear, like I was still failing drug tests and stuff like that. My parents were getting more and more fed up with the behavior. So that was the first time I actually went to inpatient treatment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when I was 16. And I did not want to go. I did not want to be sober at that point. But the stuff they were saying definitely resonated with me where they were like, hey, 
uh do you have cravings when you know you do drugs i'm like yeah okay i i do have cravings yes Mm -hmm. like how do you have a hard time quitting you know substances like all all the standard sort of aa questions type stuff uh i i tend to answer yes Mm -hmm. for every single one so but the other thing about being a 16-year-old in inpatient treatment is I got to talk to a lot of other drug addicts who mm-hmm. were doing a lot more hardcore drugs than I was. And, you know, hearing their stories, it wasn't a like, oh, my God, yeah, that sounds so bad. It was like, oh, does meth really feel that good? <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, came, I came out of treatment just like, well, it couldn't hurt to try it once, right? right? <laughs> like... Yeah, no, yeah. it it does. <laughs> I could talk about uh, this portion of my story for a while, but I'm just going to fast forward and say there was another trip to treatment in the mix, got kicked out of my parents' house, not just once, but twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second time I was just kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm done with high school. I'm just going to get my GED and just work like this clearly isn't working with uh, living at home. I'm interested. Um, you, you you said you weren't out. No, and that's that's still the case. What 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 impact do you think that had? How how much did your queerness impact your addiction story? Are you in touch with that? Have you thought about that? Oh, I've I've thought about that a lot. In fact, when I listened to your guys' previous episode on the subject, and you talked about masculinity and sort of you know this idea of having to seem masculine and relating that to addiction, like I really resonate with that mm-hmm. um, because one of the things was I didn't want to get picked on for you know seeming like too feminine or Mm -hmm. seeming too effeminate and so to me in my mind like doing drugs made me a little more hardcore Mm. right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it sort of just got to this point where i I would use any substance Mm -hmm. thrown my way past this point where i'm out of my parents house like got an apartment with some friends and working uh working the a job at i think i was at red robin at okay. the time bussing tables mm-hmm. um which is if you ever notice a kid bussing tables at red robin with a bright red face he's been up all night on coke i'm just gonna that <laughs> right now great yeah yeah but and that that was me i was that kid yeah. and you know draw that apartment that we lived in like it started getting more and more intense with the drug use throughout that year that we were there um and i i was really bitter because people started calling it the crack house mm. and i was like we don't we don't do crack here mm. like what, what do you you know we do a lot of coke and like some meth or whatever but no by the end of the year we were like cooking our own crack mm. in there and smoking it and also shooting coke and we had a lot of guns in there it 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 was very scary yeah it, it was very scary so what were the guns for Man, we were a bunch of kids from Bellevue. My one friend who lived in did actually have a giant trust fund and had this idea in his head that he was going to be like Scarface in Bellevue or something. (laughs) Um, And like moved. So when he moved into my house, he moved in with a 500 pound gun safe that we tried to get back to the back bedroom, but it wouldn't fit in the hallway in this two bedroom apartment. So we wound up lying it flat on its back in the middle of my living room and so it doubled as a coffee table great okay (laughs) and how old were you at this point 
I was 18. 18. Yeah. Yeah. I was 18 at this point. But, and then the thing was, I mean, you know, this friend of mine was doing way too many of his own drugs to ever be a successful drug dealer. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. eventually got pissed at me and my other roommate because we also couldn't stop ourselves from doing way too many of the way too many it's why i could never be a girl scout i would just eat all the cookies and (laughs) that is that is exactly the main reason yeah Yeah. Yeah. so um but no i mean things got really really scary in that apartment like i actually i don't know if i actually overdosed that night Mm -hmm. but i'm pretty sure i had some seizures from shooting too much coke Mm -hmm. um and didn't i mean i didn't go to the hospital or anything but at that point my friends were like hey dude this is getting scary like Mm. we're worried you're gonna die um and had had some close friends who pulled me out of that apartment and basically were just like you can't you can't live here anymore Mm. you're gonna kill yourself and it was honestly like it it was an amazing thing these guys did for me Mm. and Mm. uh so this was the third time i went into inpatient treatment Mm -hmm. And this was like a really, really weird little time period in my life because I actually wanted to get sober. And basically, I the way I like to talk about this little brief time period of sobriety for me is I stopped shooting dope and started shooting G.O.D. Um, I got like super into the idea of spirituality and like i mean it was weird right because you know i i'm dressed in like a metal band shirt right now but like i used to have like a ton of face piercings to like septum and labray and eyebrow and wore (laughs) (laughs) wore all black all all the time and would just talk to strangers on the street about god i mean i was like way in into the whole like spiritual program thing um what was different this time um first off there was the fact that like i actually didn't want to be on drugs Mm. anymore for the first time in my life i think a sort of combination of my friends pulling me out of that apartment and really showing me like hey you know we really care about you we really don't want you to kill yourself doing this and then also i I actually had an experience in treatment where I was having very intense cravings and seemingly out of nowhere just got the idea of like, hey, why don't you try to pray about this? Mm. And I did. And it worked Mm. like I just immediately stopped having cravings. Mm. And so um, for me, it was kind of like this sort of like I saw the light type experience where, you know, I. I was actually willing to give 12-step programs a try, like Mm -hmm. a real honest try. The only problem for me at this point was all those friends who kind of pulled me out of that apartment were a bunch of stoners. And I was like, well, I'm not going to stop hanging out with those guys. They're my friends. Mm -hmm. And wasn't really willing to change the places I was hanging out or the people I was hanging out with. And so, you know, hanging out with this group of friends while they're passing around a blunt and just without even thinking about it, just snatch the blunt out of midair and hit it. And they're all like, oh, fuck, dude. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, that that kind of started me on my last year and a half of getting loaded. And like I like I said uh, earlier, or I don't know if we were recording when I said this, (laughs) but uh, so I, I started out with the intention of like, if I just drink 
and smoke weed and try to be a good person Mm -hmm. um maybe i can do this and like uh manage it and about six months in i started doing hard drugs again to get off drinking Mm. uh because Mm. i was like i said just such a shit show of a drunk like i would black out Almost every single time um, I would get in fights with friends. I mean, I would like, you know, people would have to steal my keys from me because I would drive. Um, And so for me, it was like, oh, and I started getting arrested a bunch, too, for doing, you know, drunken, disorderly stuff in public. And I was like, man, when I was like shooting coke, I never left my fucking bathroom. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, so to me, it was like it. Uh, it it just sort of kind of became this weird thing of like where my standards for what acceptable behavior was just kept getting like lower and lower right like I started out of like well if I just drink and smoke weed and then it became like well if I just smoke crack and oxycontins instead of shooting coke and heroin and then like I fuck I shot heroin again for the first time in over a year and I was like fuck like (laughs) This isn't good. And here's the other crazy thing. I actually happened to get pulled over while driving on heroin that night. Had had not touched it in a year. I get pulled over by this cop and I just immediately burst into tears. Like I like I knew I was fucked. Right. (laughs) Knew I'd been caught. There was no getting away with this one. Um, And, you know, like. I'm I'm not trying to say one thing one way or the other about cops here. You know, I know there's a lot of discussion on that lately, mm-hmm. but like this cop was honestly just like, hey, dude, I I can see you're, you know, a really troubled person and I'm going to suggest drug court for you. Basically, it was it was one of the best things that ever happened to me, to be honest. My first year of sobriety, I was in what is called drug diversion court, if you guys have ever heard of that. But it basically allows you to show up to court dates once a month if if you're charged with a felony drug possession of some sort. And if you complete the program, your felony gets wiped. So... Uh, The fastest you can complete it is 10 months. And like this time I was like, I was fucking serious. I mean, I was so broken down from using drugs and drinking that I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay sober. And for me, what that looked like was going into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous writing what's called a fourth step if you guys are familiar with that it's taking inventory and doing it honestly i i need to be very clear about this uh writing an honest fourth step because when i was like 16 the first time kind of dabbling in treatment programs and in aa meetings i actually worked with a sponsor and wrote a fourth step and it was full of lies (laughs) um and you know the the one big thing for me that i knew was that like whoever is sponsoring me i'm gonna have to tell him that i'm queer Mm. like i can't run from this anymore like i need to fucking tell him this Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh which you know was the big omission from that earlier fourth step i'd done when i was younger so Mm -hmm. yeah that's uh that's my brief synopsis (laughs) yeah yeah wow i know i'm fixating on age but how old were you then when you when you got sober or yeah yeah i was 20 years old Mm. when i got sober so never had a legal drink in your life never have had (laughs) a legal drink that's interesting wow 
but this would be a good time to talk about uh gay spaces with like alcohol and stuff yeah uh, sure yeah so do, do you go to queer spaces that have booze all the time and all the time it is it, it, so i think drunk people are the worst <laughs> so here's, here's the thing it depends on the drunk person mm-hmm. because i know a lot of drunk people who get super mushy as soon as they're drunk and i love that shit like, <laughs> i'm like yeah let's talk about our feelings this is fucking great so um but no i you know i think for me i'm probably kind of a weirdo in terms of the whole like being a sober person in queer spaces with drinking because i just don't have that association with uh you know i never i never drank legally in bars like and i I did drink in a couple bars but they were never gay bars because i wasn't out yeah um so i just don't have the same association to bars and parties that i know some other people might so Mm -hmm. you know for me it has always just been a like social thing of like i'm gonna go out with my partner or my friends to this gay bar and if everyone else is drinking that's fine it has no effect on me or what i'm doing there i'm there to be social and there to be with people Mm so so in your estimation having having lived a straight life and a gay life uh do you do you think the perception that gay people are um, more dependent on drugs and alcohol does that jibe with your reality or do you, do you think straight people is the same oh no no no! absolutely think it affects the gay community way way more mm-hmm. um and you know i to me what i actually think it really comes down to is a lot of trauma mm-hmm. um and just i i think on the whole gay people as you know kids and as we're figuring out who we are tend to experience a lot more trauma around it than straight people do and you know i i think it pushes a lot of us into addiction and alcoholism and one thing that i know a a fact that got looked up that i found really curious was this uh sort of thing about like lesbians tending to drink more than gay men Mm -hmm. i think if i remember right Mm -hmm. and bisexual women I think were the like had the most the highest rates of drug and alcohol dependency i believe so to me i find that crazy because if you are on you know dating apps like the amount of gay men who do meth is astonishing mm-hmm. i mean i have gone on you know various dating apps and literally just seen a meth pipe and a bag of dope as their profile picture mm-hmm. i'm just like well you're either a cop or <laughs> um <laughs> But no, I mean, and there are, in fact, uh, 12-step meetings specifically for crystal meth users. And like, if you go, it is nine times out of 10, it's all gay men Hmm. in there. Hmm. So Hmm. yeah, um, no, I definitely think that it it affects us more. I mean, there, there's no doubt in my mind hmm. on that count. So, and you know, as, as I started to come out, uh, in the program, like I, I definitely started to gravitate towards gay 12 step meetings. So, hmm. um, there, there is a place for us. And yeah. You mentioned briefly that you, you're, that, uh, 12, well, 12 step programs have obviously been a really integral part of your recovery. Uh, but you mentioned earlier that you're, uh, some of it's because of the pandemic that like it's been harder to go to meetings and and sometimes you know zoom meetings aren't quite the same um we've had conversations where you say addicts and, and alcoholics deserve better what do you think 
alcoholics and addicts deserve in terms of recovery options or 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 how to like ways to get sober or I, I think that's a great question, actually, just in terms of what do alcoholics and addicts deserve. Um, and so here, here are my thoughts. I do not want to sit here and just rag on 12-step programs because they were a massive part of my story and helping me get sober. I just don't think they're enough. I don't think they're enough for all of the different drug addicts and alcoholics out there. And I think that we deserve a medical treatment for what is a medical condition. I mean, alcoholism, you know, a lot of people have referred to it as this disease model, which is maybe not the most accurate. I think they're kind of finding out these days, but it is still, it's a medical condition. And so to have a spiritual program as sort of the dominating treatment in our country, it just doesn't really make sense. You know what I mean? Like if someone got cancer and they were like, we'll just go to this group and pray about it and, you know, uh, make amends for all the things you've done wrong. You'd be like, I have fucking cancer. What, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know what I mean? And the other thing, Although I think some, some denominations think that that is the right way to cure <laughs> cancer. <true>. But, <laughs> um, but that, that's the thing is like, you know, AA as, as much as it did work for me and I've seen it work well for other people. I think there are a lot of areas where it, you know, it doesn't work that well for everyone. Like mm. I think there are a lot of people who've only, only ever had an issue with one substance hmm. and AA is an abstinence only program. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and uh, okay. So yeah, there's probably some people who are going to meetings and smoking weed, but there's a lot of people in the programs who will say they're not doing it right. Um, but you know, I, th I think for someone like me who does have a quote unquote addictive personality and did use every substance that I touched addictively, AA worked really well because it was easy for me to say like, yeah, like I use as an addict or alcoholic, no matter what I use. Right. Mm -hmm. But I've had plenty of friends who, you know, had a heroin addiction but they can use alcohol and weed normally. Mm. Or I've met people who have a really, really tough time with weed and it becomes pretty all consuming, but they can just go out and drink every once in a while. And so I don't think there's a lot of room for gray area in the way that AA operates. Mm. Um, and the other thing is I really wish that like people in 12 step programs were a little bit more comfortable with the idea of harm reduction, which I don't know if you guys are as familiar, but it's sort of this idea that, you know, this person used to do heroin and now they're just smoking weed. That's that's a win, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> or like, you know, this person used to do heroin and now they're on a Suboxone program. There's people in 12-step programs who are very critical of that. And I'm like, hey, that person's not shooting up fucking heroin anymore. So mm -hmm. like, yeah, let them do Suboxone. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, my my whole thing is I just think addicts and alcoholics deserve more. Mm. We deserve more options. And I do not think that 12-step programs should have the stranglehold that they do on recovery in this country. Well, um, Bobby, thank you so much for being here. Really, really appreciate it. It's great to hear your story. And um, I, I don't know, it feels maybe 
trite. I don't know. I, 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 I admire the courage to come on and just lay it all out there. I think that's really awesome. Oh, no. I mean, I have been telling this story and talking about this stuff for a long time now. So, no, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. You guys and yeah, privileged to be here. Awesome. Well, in, enjoy fisting, Dan. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Are we back? Are we back? <laughs> Is that it? Are we back? <laughs> We're back. Hey, sure, why not? Uh, um, so we are here with Danny F. And uh, they are... How do you know them? I'm very confused. Can I say how Please, I know you? you yeah. can... Yeah. Uh, so, Did I fuck up the first question? That's fantastic. <laughs> so uh, the Anon part of Al-Anon, which is where we met, uh, is uh, anonymous. So I you did generally, fuck up the first question. You generally ask consent <laughs> oh, before no. revealing that someone say, was in a program. I yeah. know. I always say uh, in these moments, a mutual friend. Uh, That's the way... I've done it, yeah. and um, we met at a meeting. Is I that don't still normally, too yeah. I mean, who goes to meetings anymore? Oh, really, yeah. you know. But I, I've always just said, yeah, mutual friend, and they say who, and I'll just say Bill this woman or Lois Blow. or Bill yeah, or yeah. Blow, <laughs> Blow, Blois. <laughs> no, um, yeah, and usually that's enough. Um, yeah, you can use that now if you want. Yeah. Mutual friend, mutual but friend, it was yeah. it was um, love at first sight. I think because mm-hmm. I wanted. Can I say you have facial hair on the yeah. air? Yeah, okay, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, they, our listeners know intimate details about my body, so yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. Dan is has a piece of my heart. Yeah. Always will. So. Yeah, we met in a meeting, and I was new to Al-Anon and. Um, wasn't quite sold on it and wasn't connecting with people Mm -hmm. and then danny and i were in the same meeting one friday night and like we're we literally i think that night we're like how are our stories so similar how are we so similar how are like we're clearly like the same person who was like ripped apart into two bodies when we were like Mm-hmm. Oh, stop. I wanted to make everyone laugh on this podcast. <laughs> like, oh, you got plenty of chips. Uh, okay. Yes. So uh, that was roughly, what, two years ago, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Two, three years. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. It's it's awesome to have you. Just by way of like introduction, can I ask how, how do you how you identify gender, sexual orientation, pronouns, all of that kind of stuff? Oh, I'm a non-binary queerdo. Uh-huh. And uh, they thought, they, them. Uh-huh. And... I've always been a superhero, so it's just like it was meant to be uh-huh. the the white tight with a cape. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. That's <laughs> it. What are, um, what are your superpowers? Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Actually, I've always been able to figure out gnarly things that no one else can. Like uh, figure out how to do something or how to say something or how to get somewhere that no one else can figure out. But I really wish I could projectile vomit on people I don't like. Yes. That would be like the superpower. Yes. And no one is talking about how cool that would be. Because <laughs> imagine any sort of fight. You're just like, bloop. And yep. then. I knew a kid named Jeff that could do that. <sighs> wow. And right. did. Yeah. yeah I mean. Because he was like a gutter punk. Like he, he thought it was fucking hilarious. To it is. On command. Yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. Think about the political ramifications. Yeah. Just like. Uh, so we're doing an episode about recovery and um, yeah. specifically impacts on on the queer community, um, which are m- many. <laughs> um, but uh, how do you how do you define yourself in terms of, of recovery? Uh, recovery, sober, clean and sober. Um, well, I identify as an addict and an alcoholic. Okay. But I am in recovery. Uh-huh. I you know there's lots of language that goes around. Are you recovered? Recovering? Yeah. I don't know. 
gerunds from adverbs. Um, yeah. But I really, the fact that I knew what a gerund was actually tells you I do know what a gerund is. Anyway, um, but You're lying I... lying to us. I'm lying. <laughs> I'll promptly admit it. Um, so the... I'm in recovery, mm-hmm. and that's how I refer to it. It's a constant evolution. There is, I don't think you ever stop trying, mm-hmm. right? And there will always be times where certain things are going to take center stage as, as far as being like a real big obstacle, emotional or otherwise. And, you know, I don't think that people go backwards. I think that, it, well, I hope not, but, uh, you know, like for me, it's a constant way of unveiling like who I was supposed to be all along and all those things that come in the way because of society's expectations or because of my mother. You can blame my mom for all of it, really. You know, just my mom. Nobody else's mom. <laughs> but the, the point is, like, all the way – the upbringing, the way that we we were molded or shaped or tempered by tragedy actually has brought us to this point where we drink or we use or we do stuff in order to balance it out. And so I think we're constantly undoing that. And as long as I can stay in my child self, like that joyful being, then I think that I'm onto something. But it, you know, I'm always going to be stuck with those memories or or issues that I have to work on. So the the common the common thing I keep hearing is that like these things run deep. Like almost everybody eventually talks about their childhood, talks about the and my mom. Yeah, and your your mom comes up a lot. Yeah, (laughs) I know, right? Um, Well, I'm actually from a big religious family. Okay, Um, so I'm number three out of ten children, Uh and we grew up on the east coast of the U.S. And I like honestly the intersection. What's interesting about this discussion is like how do you explain that kid like i was the kid there was just i was not like the other ones Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so you know as i was trying to figure out what that meant i remember like this intersection of gender and sexual orientation and later alcoholism and addiction like it's really hard to tease those things apart Mm -hmm. i was called a pajama once and i knew that wasn't good and so a pajama. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, but someone said Danny's a pajama, and I was like, "What?" Um, it turns out that's a bad thing. And so when I was three, I thought I would come out to my parents and tell them I wanted to be a boy when I grew up. Okay. Because boys don't know how to treat girls, and I can do a better job. Mm. Verbatim, and I waited until the night that the priest was over for dinner because I knew I wouldn't get spanked. Opportune time, yeah. (laughs) And I remember clear as as day, like being like, okay, I got it planned. I was like three or four years old. Like there's no way, I I mean, let's just be clear. I, again, superhero, like I was totally different from the other kids, but I knew I had to explain it to them. I was living in their house. I felt like mom, dad probably needed to know this if I was going to, you know, stay there for a little bit Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. I kicked it, you know. (laughs) It always was about not quite fitting in or not quite understanding all of those details or like why it was that some people just thought they they knew how to interact with with others. And so when we think about alcoholism and addiction, my family definitely has addiction in our history, um, but it's not like it's not like other people. So there are some adult children is what they use, like adult uh, adult children of alcoholics. But in this case, adult children could actually be impacted by religiosity, which I think was really impactful in my family. Eating disorders run deep in my family. Um, And so, and a lot of perfectionism. So these are things that like, it's about this idea that like, love was not a renewable resource. And I knew that 
there were only certain amounts of love that really could come from my parents. And I needed to be better than some children in order to get it, which meant to the deficit of others. And in my family of origin, when I was six months old, my mom was pregnant with the next kid. Yeah. So like we could go deep into all of that psychology, but the, the reality is that I had all these other explanations. So I was like, oh, maybe it's just that, you know, I'm big old queerdo and that's why nobody talks to me. But I knew I wasn't like my siblings and I knew this, that, the other thing. And so I was always trying to find something to now this gets really dirty. Hmm. Fill that God-sized hole. Oh, no. I think is the dirtiest thing anyone's it's ever my, it's said. my nickname for Dan. <laughs> God-sized hole. God-sized hole. So anytime someone says that in a meeting, I just can't. I'm like, I'll show you God-sized hole. Um, so, yes. you know. Yeah. I think with, uh, you know, what led me to the rooms of AA, you know, it was just a lot of me managing and controlling stuff. Mm. And eventually, you know, I my experience was that I woke up one morning covered in my own vomit mm. and was told that I raped my housemate. Oh, man. And um, sorry, there was no, like, trigger warning for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I had just, you know, gotten a swanky job and I was in San Francisco and... Six months into that job, I woke up one morning and I had, I I, I had no recollection of what had happened. Yeah. And this person said, "I know you were not in your right mind, but I get to live the rest of my life as a survivor, and you get to be a rapist." And I say this because there is no part of me who I am and and why I exist on this planet. That is a forcible entity that takes something that doesn't is not given freely. Yeah. Um, and so that and it, I just got chills like I yeah. it's been 14 years yeah. and it still will never be OK. Yeah. Yeah. But for me in that moment, I was like, there's not in the realm of possibilities. I can't say it didn't happen. And yeah. so I said, look. All right. This was back when there were things called taxis. So uh -huh. I said, okay. <laughs> um, I will will get two taxis. You take one. I take the other. We're going to the police station. And I, I knew like you always side with a victim. And that mm. is exactly what how my brain worked. And that's what I did. And I'm proud to know that I did that. And that's when she told me, no, you know, I, I know you aren't in your right mind and I'll always be a survivor. And, and so in that, uh, you know, I was ready to to meet whatever consequences for actions that I was told I did. And and she spent an hour or two after that telling me in explicit detail what I did. And I I still have feelings about that. And I know more about that experience and things that didn't quite – I just don't know. Mm. And But the, the point of it is that we are all people that come together and whatever had been going on for this person and whatever I did, I am totally – I was prepared and willing to to meet those consequences. Mm -hmm. um, I I know, like later on in my recovery, I was receiving threats from her, extorting me for money, um, telling me I needed to pay certain amounts of money for her to not tell my my employer and not do these things. And it was an odd number. It was like three hundred dollars or like three hundred and twelve dollars. Mm. And so it was like, wait, I'm I'm confused. You know, it, it just wasn't. There's something. So if you're thinking of extorting people for money, I guess I should just mention, like, I would expect a bigger number. So, like, 
she really should have done that. And I, I'm not sure why I, the 312 was like a big deal. So if she had done more, maybe we would have had a different discussion. But when I think about like the evolution of my recovery, I, I'm a smarty pants. And so I was like, well, I'll show you legal. Yeah. And then instead I. Did she press charges? I don't think you said. No, she did not. Okay. Okay. But this is what I did is I, I talked to my, my sponsor at the time. I'm in AA Mm -hmm. and I, I said, um, this is what's happening. Here's my legal strategy. Mm. And this person looked at me and she's like, no, you're doing nothing. I'm going to talk to my my sponsor who's going to talk to their sponsor and who are then going to tell you what to do. And all I kept thinking is, you know, do you know who I am? Do you know how smart I am? I have got this. And that's the number one way to not be in recovery. <laughs> um, you got to slow your roll. And so I was. Is, is that the, the higher power thing? Is that wrapped up in some of that? higher power. Yes. <laughs> it's this idea of not trying to manage or control everything yeah. because you need to be in a place of, I guess it's like ego deflation uh-huh. is sort of what they say. And what I found is that if whenever I think I know what's right, I'm not allowing the universe to happen or I'm not allowing the rest of the world to intercede or good things or there are no surprises mm-hmm. right and that's the pleasant way to put it you know but as long as i put myself and i make myself right size like i'm not god or i am not in charge or controlling or somehow influencing other people's behavior and uh feelings then they get the opportunity to surprise me or i get the opportunity to learn mm-hmm. and in this case, the sponsor who's, who begot the sponsor who begot the sponsor mm-hmm. came back with, um, you're going to say, I will no longer respond to any of these emails. I, I am absolutely willing and capable of, of, you know, meeting or uh, absorbing the consequences of my actions, but you must do it through legal channels, mm. appropriate legal channels. And I never heard from this person again. Yeah. And I was, I got to tell you, I was terrified. Mm. It's like, this person is, is emailing my work email. Yeah. yeah. Like, they knew where I worked. Yeah, and I, yeah. I worked for a very big company for a famous person at a big company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was just so terrified. And the reality of it was that in those fears, what I was doing was still putting myself first, like thinking that I knew best. Mm-hmm. And instead, by relying on, you know, whomever... This list of Orando, you know, former crack addicts that were now my sponsor. Like, you know, I was relying on their collective intelligence or their their guidance. And that was the best choice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like in all of this, I mean, we kind of got into recovery really fast in this discussion. But mm-hmm. the longer that I stayed sober, the more I know that I have to... One, pray. My version of prayer is like breathing, conceding that I'm not the only entity in the room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm a singer, so that makes it really easy. Mm -hmm. Whenever I sing, I'm able to be a vessel in this way that um, will blow your mind because I'm so good. But um, (laughs) it's, it's actually really cool because I have gender dysphoria, you know, like I said, I wanted to be a boy because boys don't know how to treat girls. Meow, meow. But I... When I sing, this beautiful thing comes out. And so I have to concede that, in fact, I'm not a piece of shit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in that, that's where I find this higher power mm-hmm. or this other thing. Because it's just a bunch of, like, water and tissue. But for some reason, 
the air comes through my body and I sing and something beautiful comes out and I can't explain it, you know? And that the lack of explanation is sort of where I, I sit with my recovery because like there are some things that happen that I just, when I have no other explanation, I write this down and I put it in what I call proof jar. Mm. That proof jar is fucking full now. I gotta go find another one. Like it's like too full. So I just like wedge little pieces of paper that's like, there's no, like for example, I was broke. This is a common theme, but I, I had no money and I got a letter from my bank, which was reversing my financial aid payments for an entire year because I had been unemployed and I told them so. <laughs> they thought it wasn't fair that my financial aid company was still deducting, was still like taking withdrawals from my. Wow. Wow. I'm not going to tell you which bank it was because now you're going to go and join that bank. <laughs> I was going to say, can you tell me? Maybe later. Pod? Yeah. Um, and, but it was only because I did the next step. I just said, look, this is true. You know, I can understand to a certain degree. Like, yes, I'm responsible and I will be responsible for this, this fund. But right now I have nothing. And they, I've asked them to stop doing the automated payments and they keep doing them. So mm. that was where it came. And they're like, oh, I don't think that's fair. If mm. you've already asked them and they keep doing it. Right. So there is some reason for it. But I had totally forgotten about it. And then when I was down to my like last whatever, like $4, like all of a sudden there is money in the bank. And yeah. like I can't explain it. There's no – other than being patient and doing the next thing and not assuming I know best mm. and not getting hot, heavy and like un, unreasonable, right? So, you know, I I think that the psychic change happens, this idea of like I can't be in charge because when I'm in charge, things happen that are not necessarily elegant. Mm. When I let the universe decide, then I can look back and see that like, oh – Okay, I get it. I get it. I understand why I dated my mother so many times and so many different faces. Like, okay, now I get it. Now I'm never going to date someone like my mother again, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it, it takes a while and you got to slow down and be patient for it. And when we use drugs and alcohol or when I use drugs and alcohol, y'all could be fine. But for me, Danny Tsunami happens and no <laughs> one wants that. Nobody wants <laughs> oh, So we could talk about all of that. What I know is that I would drink to not feel like me. Yeah. And I would use so that it was because I was I looked like I was freaking 10 years old when I was 21. So I, drugs were easier to get and they didn't smell. So I did drugs. That yeah. was a lot easier. Um, I would take things out of my brother's like science kit and just swallow them and see what would happen. Oh, wow. I didn't die. So I'm convinced I won't ever, <laughs> ever preserved you're the um, first immortal we've ever had on the show so. i know right <laughs> hasn't happened yet so um the but like i i remember going to like being a teenager and babysitting and being like let me check out mama's you know medicine cabinet oh got all the right stickers da, 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 you know and that's really not good kids yeah. if you're listening don't do that but we did it because I, you know, I was broken. Like I lived in a really religious family and I was kicked out as a teenager. And, you know, my, I can't blame my mom for all of it. She really was doing the best she could because she had a religious fervor. And I expected my parents to know how to raise this superhero. Mm. And, and I never would have gotten to a place of acceptance if it weren't for the 12 steps of AA, mm. specifically number four and five. Mm -hmm. um, and it was only by doing it, my like really being fearless and thorough, like really sitting there 
and deciding like either I'm going to be tortured as a victim for the rest of my life or I'm going to come up with a reason why I have a part to play. And as a non-binary person who is short statured and stunning, <laughs> you can tell on this podcast, um, I, like as a person that might not be treated the same because of what I look like, mm. like I had to come up with something like I, I needed to decide, like, am I going to be a victim all the time or am I going to be an agent for change that's going to stop these cycles that is going to look at like the systemic racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, fat phobia, whatever other stuff you can throw in there. And am I going to just not allow that to be my life anymore? Mm -hmm. And it means that like every day that we're alive, you're constantly being bombarded with all of this bullshit. And that's where your addict brain kind of will listen, be like, oh, maybe I am a piece of shit. Maybe I really don't deserve a job. Maybe I really, you know, like all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think a modern context of recovery is that you challenge those thoughts. You talk to somebody else who will laugh with you and be like, that's that's your brain, dude. Put it in the bin. Like that's not that not worth listening to. But there are very few of those people around. And and so if you find somebody like that, go where it's warm. That that was suggested to me when I first got sober. Don't why why sit with the people that are too cool for school? Like don't don't bother. Yeah. Sit with the people that really love life and look like they don't mind being alive. Yeah. <laughs> and just they're going to welcome you in. And so in COVID times, it's hard. Yeah. But if somebody makes eye contact with you, smiles or chats or just gives a shit, mm -hmm. those are people that know something or are okay with being human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to try to like stick it out and stick stick it out and be alive and be, you know, chubby or stupid or ugly or whatever in order to stop this perfectionistic like way of thinking or like, a patriarchal way of doing things mm -hmm. they're not going to always assume they're right it's interesting you mentioned covid because um there's a oh you've got questions well, a, there, a, yeah. well just a, a a study here that was talking about how um specifically alcohol abuse how how covid has measurably increased the number of people that oh, have problem drinking in, in 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 this country but that it is especially problematic for the lgbtqia plus community and um, i blame a lack of good porn yeah, <laughs> you know, we if we can't get that going, we're gonna we just want to make it look look right. So we just keep. I would assume people just keep drinking. So better yeah. sex, better porn, really should help that. I when I first got um, sober, I a dear friend of mine told me, "Look, you can't drink with a dick in your mouth." <laughs> um, I remember you telling yes. me that one. Uh, that so much. Flaming gay man, I love you so much, Jamie. And Jamie said, yeah, you can't drink with a dick in your mouth. And that was just sort of everyone nodded. They're like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I, so I want to make a bumper sticker that says blow dudes, not coke and see if like. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, do you know how fast that we can get done? <laughs> I'll just keep talking. You start typing. Okay. Like, oh, and pink. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I love about recovery and what you're talking about with COVID, it's like the isolation is the thing that is why people are like really in their, their – you get stuck with your own thoughts and old, you know, former or seasoned – I'll call them seasoned people in recovery will say, you know, don't go into your head alone at night. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Right? Like, it's a dangerous place to be. Um, It's so true. But why limit it to nighttime? Because, you know. Why Why do we think that our best thinking that got us like on the like sleeping in the on the floor of whatever or waking up in places that we are not sure are for humans to live in and like, like why do we think that that is a sane vessel or vehicle or mechanism by which we're going to make good choices in the future. (laughs) So like, yeah, especially, you know, being a queerdo, it was super difficult to know how to navigate that Mm. as a sober person. So I always would just drink because I was terrified, terrified of people that are attractive. Mm. And you try having a conversation with somebody as a sober person without any skills. Mm. I just Mm. like, oh, no, we're fine. I'm only afraid of attractive people. Like, first of all, that's not going to keep a friend, by the way. Like, if you're like, oh, no, we're fine. I'm only terrified of attractive humans. Yeah, we, we can hang out because you're gross. Is that what you're <laughs> that's saying? That's basically <laughs> like, you know, I thought that was at me perfect sense. But no, don't say that. Um, but I was terrified because it had everything to do with how I saw my body and like all this stuff. And in reality, being sober is like the most incredible sex of your life Mm. if you're doing it right because you remember everything and it's really so vital and intimate and like i didn't realize that i used to only be able to like have sex if i was high like it just allowed me to be more comfortable which can still work and that's fine for everyone else i don't care about other people with that's concerned Mm. I just want to make sure that i don't commit felonies yeah yeah (laughs) i don't harm others and then I, when I realized how terrified I was of intimacy without using, then all of a sudden it was like, well, I'm going to be a motherfucking badass and I'm going to face these fears and be courageous. Mm. And then I only have, I've only had partners that I trusted or the partners that I've had are intentional and everything else. Like, honestly, I love my vibrator. So I don't like. <laughs> I'm sorry. If people are boring me, I don't need you. I'm going home. I have everything I need and then some. And and I'll take care of myself. And I think that we forget that like intimacy is not just fucking. It's like intimacy happens like Dan and I, intimacy. Hmm. You maybe one day, you and me. Who knows? But like I seriously would rather boil my cocks than actually see them on a person that I'm having sex with. So there's that. But um, I just needed to make it really dirty so that we could say it wasn't a family-friendly show. Yeah, I appreciate I, that. I appreciate, I appreciate the yeah, effort. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so now that we've done that, I'm like, okay, uh, good. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of gay men, I see them having sex because it's clear that intimacy is what they actually desire. And they're not finding it in the kind of sex that they're having, but they still keep trying. Right. It, it doesn't it, – it can't get any longer. Like it's it's not gonna get into the heart. Like it it just. I've seen an X-ray. It gets close, but not very close. Right, but it's like that's funny. But it's like, dude, what are you trying to? Like, are you trying to? No. Um, and I think what I learned with my family of origin was just that the word love that they used isn't. I don't need that love. That mm-hmm. love was conditional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they get to survive and live and thrive. And they do. But that's not the kind of love that I want. And love for me is elastic. It it, it expands and it, it can hold more than you think it can. And I really don't believe that there's anything a person could do 
that if you had the right foundation of love and respect that you can't you can't overcome it mm-hmm. um and it, no i'm i'm serious like think about it like if you understand the value or the 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 soul or the goodness of a person like you understand them and i think that's what recovery teaches us is that we're all pieces of shit like when we've come into the like there is nothing that i have done that somebody else in the rooms hasn't also done to 12 people or to more people harder faster cheaper whatever it is like and so i know i i can love and accept them and that there is nothing they're humans Mm -hmm. and there's something about that that at my worst I know that I have, I am among people that have value and that I will show love and respect to, mm-hmm. you know, and I've, I've definitely been in rooms where people have, have challenged my patience. They've challenged my, um, like they are, have said things that are inappropriate to be said to human beings. I've been told to shut up mm-hmm. and I've been, people have sworn at me, mm-hmm. but what I've learned for being a fucking queer like let's just be clear uh, you know and i have used that as a way to be like oh i can sit down love and tolerance and then choose what i'm gonna do next Mm. right and oftentimes i'll go home and always sleep on it like uh, i don't have to do a damn thing Mm. like and that's actually something you learn in recovery Mm. is that when in doubt do nothing if you learn nothing from this podcast, just do nothing. <laughs> because <laughs> although it is a program of action, <laughs> um, that doesn't mean action right now. And mm-hmm. it also means like our brains need a minute. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. always take a minute. Slow briety is the way to go. Slow briety. I love I've it. I've never heard that. I love a good portmanteau. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. I, my, I had a friend who just made it up one day because uh, she was trying to say, you know, like, it's so good to see you and like how are something and she just was like slow briety i was like yeah because (laughs) that's what we want like i really do love excitement but i've never laughed and i've never laughed so hard and remembered why i laughed as when i'm sober so i really do think that the the ones that make it like we are a rowdy bunch Mm -hmm. and we're crafty as fuck we've survived a ton and somebody always has a better story about <laughs> something they've done. But as far as talking about being queer, evolving as a person, having an adolescent brain, then getting sober, like it's super tricky. And we're constantly challenged, like in a regular world. Like, regular world doesn't play by AA rules. Turns out, your boss is an asshole <laughs> and <laughs> you are getting fired for no reason or you being honest could get you fired, right? You know, I, I remember doing like a performance review and wanting to be like, and I'm sober. And I'd be like, oh shit, I can't write that in. Like I can't, I can't get credit for that. Damn it. No felonies this year. Thanks, you know. But the, and actually in this one job, um, I was like, dude, I could always just like stretch and be like, I'm always available and I will be on point. And then I was working with a, a person that was Mormon and she didn't even dance. So it was like, damn it. <laughs> she doesn't eat, drink coffee or even eat chocolate. She doesn't dance. Oh. She wins. But, um, <laughs> but I had a bow tie and so I, I was fashionable. But like even in that, I, I see the laughter is actually 
another one of those examples of a higher power. Mm. So like the space in my lungs when I sing or, you know, laughter, the higher power. And it helps to ask other people, like, what do you think there is that's in charge of everything or is acting in your life? And asking other people, why not? Like, you know, I I had to think about my understanding of God for a long time hmm. because before, look, I come from a religious background. Like, that's a shady. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Not sure we want that one. And then the representatives on earth, ah, they're kind of uh, causing some <laughs> problems. Yeah. Um, so in that, I had to think about what what could I imagine was the greatest feeling and then kind of build a story around it. And that's helped me. Um, and right now, like my sense of what – you didn't ask this question, but I'm just going to – Yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, my sense of higher power is like the greatest – electric guitar like bass guitarist mm-hmm. that ever lived mm-hmm. flea right from red hot chili peppers oh, i was thinking <laughs> carrie brownstein but that's okay um <laughs> carrie if you're listening no. um, <laughs> um but no like the best electric guitarist like bass guitarist is sitting in a room and just wants to show me how to rock yeah. and has all the time in the world that's what i think a higher power could feel for me like and if i can get my brain around that all of a sudden i'm like wow what an amazing world that would be Mm. they just want to show you how to rock Mm. and so if i i I don't know why that resonates for me but it it's like there's enough time there's enough resource there's enough brilliance and all they want is for me to flourish Mm. and Mm. so can't we live in a world where we try to do that for others you know Carrie, call me. But um, <laughs> like, no, but in, in reality, that's like how I get to show up and show other people like this is how big and how elastic love can be. And so having been in places where I didn't want to be alive anymore and then working on recovery and and caring for myself in a way that was better than I've experienced mm-hmm. by humans, you create a world that even if it's just in my house – you allow people to know that they're worthy of love. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think people say life isn't fair, but if you're fair, maybe eventually it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I I keep workshopping that quote, so we'll see. But um, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think why not? Like, do what's right. Pay for what you drank or ate at the grocery store. Like, just do it. It's a, it's a, it's such a thrill to be like, no, I saw you didn't charge me for that. Here you go. Mm-hmm. I did that at like a at an airport. It was like five dollars for like a Rocher or like something stupid. Like you're just like, I can't believe I'm doing this. But I did it, and it was sort of me being like, just like. There's something about it. It's just like I totally dismantled the patriarchy by doing that. (laughs) Right? Like it's not what people expect. And you just show up and you're like, no, that's wrong. I don't think you should talk to someone that way. Or, oh, I'm going to clean this up and not tell anyone I did it. And those are the things that like they just make you feel more vital than if you just exist in the rules of of this commercial or like patriarchal world that we live in. that was that was deep. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, you just celebrated a milestone. Is oh that my right? god, yeah. I certainly did. May first, 
I just celebrated 14 years of continuous sobrata. Wow. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yeah, Thank it, you. I, I wanted to add, I'm, I'm super ignorant about like recovery and, and recovery culture and all of that. Is You've it never a, been to a 12-step meeting or anything? Never. Like that. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it makes me, it, like, is congratulations appropriate? Is that the right? Um, re- you should rip off all your clothes and dance around. Great. Okay. Um, <laughs> actually, on my tenure, I ran around a room and had everyone give me a high five yeah. because I had seen someone else do it. I was like, why not? Yeah. I, yeah. Did, I did this for 10 fucking years. Years. I'm gonna run around, but you know, in COVID, then everyone's just like, "Yeah, don't no, touch me." <laughs> I'm gonna go and get all of the like. I you get bling if you do it right. Like they give you a little metal uh, coin, but yeah, congratulations is definitely okay. important. Um, we get crazier as you get more sober, but <laughs> so you, you keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. But the um, it's important that you celebrate every day but then you don't you don't use that 14 years or whatever as proof that you're right yeah because then you've got someone that's not really in this moment and you know i i always joke that like 14 years i'm hella lazy look at that it's taken me 14 years still haven't had a drink like i can't even get off the couch right but um the and i still think that's the funniest thing ever but um the reality is that there's all this other work that happens. There's also a lot of other addictions that show up. And and it's up to us if we're going to decide that that's enough of an excuse. Like if we do something else in excess, are we therefore pieces of shit? Mm. No. It, it's about like being human and being okay with that. Mm. And I think that's really the end. Like that's the hardest thing in the world mm. to be aging and be okay with it mm-hmm. because nobody else is. Yeah. So um, you should go to an AA meeting. You got to go to an open one, though. I mean, like, I, I've, yeah. I've, I have plenty of alcoholics in my family, so I might as well like you just go you know, home. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah there you go. Got it. Um, I, I do want to ask you about about queer spaces and sure. like alcohol. Seems like it's a part of almost every single one of them. Um, you can find alcohol free queer spaces, but they're pretty rare. Um, what, what's that experience like for you? Is oh, that- yeah. I mean, what I found funny is that I think everyone's drunk and high and stoned or whatever all the time. I just didn't know it until I got sober oh. <laughs> that everyone else has always been that way. And so, like, I just keep it into, like, just keep it into your hula hoop, as they say. Like, just I don't care about other people. It's just about what I can do and be proud of, mm. right? So in a space where there's lots of of options, mm-hmm. um, I will bring like I, you know if you can't bring anything in, I'm actually an insulin dependent diabetic, so I can bring something in everywhere. So I get super lucky. I'd be like, "Fuck that! I'm a diabetic. Shut the fuck up." Right? <laughs> um, we used to actually say, "I'm a diabetic. Shut the fuck up." Like that was actually made me feel better. But um, but if I go to a bar or something like that, like. Honestly, I bring little umbrellas with me. Like I make the, well, I'll say gay drink. Mm -hmm. But what really I'm saying is like I don't need, um, I make it fun for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not about other people again. And if they need, if they are more comfortable drinking, I know when I drink, I end up doing things that I, that are not who I want to be and who how I show up in the world. So I make sure that I get the best fucking drink I can find mm. and it tastes good and that's great. I once went – was at a – was oh, my God. It was my sister's graduation and she wanted me to go to a house party. Now, mind you, I was like, I don't know, like 10 years older than this sibling and I was like, 
okay, let's go to a house party. <laughs> and there was like a live band. And we went, we get to, we went to like Trader Joe's or whatever, got artisanal root beer and ripped off all the labels. Mm. I totally recommend you do this. Okay. No matter what, if you're early in recovery, do that. We were in every single like montage photograph, drinking our root beer and like a brown glass bottle up to the mouth. Just like, Fuck! You know, and like it was awesome and no one knew it was root beer. And we did we just like we just had fun. And you know, there those things, other other things are uh that I learned from from other queers is like Go where they have sparkling grape juice mm. and they will always pour it in a Chardonnay glass. Mm. Mm. So do that brunches that way. Mm. Mm. And you can talk to anybody ahead of time. But, it, you know, navigating queer spaces. I think like one time I was at like a kink party. That was, was interesting because I didn't realize like I really wanted a fancy drink. And sometimes kink parties are not so – they don't have a whole lot there. So I recommend that king parties think about that because, like, you've got extra stressors. Maybe you, you need something that's sugar-free for a diabetic that might be coming. Mm. Uh, just saying, <laughs> just saying. Uh, hint, but hint. Yeah. hint, hint. Like, but but that was an interesting intersection because it was a queer space, and I, you know, like it, it didn't matter like what I wanted or what I was gonna, how I was gonna engage in that space. I didn't. It was a, one of those moments where I got triggered, and I was like. I haven't felt this in a while. Hmm. And I just, you know, I went outside. I went and I think I bought like a diet soda somewhere and then came back. But like it was interesting. You learn what your um, thresholds are. And that was also kink related. That's funny. <laughs> ah! um, and so you, I knew enough to go get air and then come back. But if you're early in recovery, always make sure you're with friends because life is too funny and too enjoyable like honestly and you know random hookups are great but i i don't really i want them to remember it as much as i want to remember it and so like that's my take and if that's not for you that's fine it's totally fine like just always like i think consent is obviously the sexiest thing you could ever have in in an experience with someone so I always want to make sure that it's 100% consent. And if I'm not drinking, that means that we'll never be on the same level if they are. And that's just my take. Yeah. Like, And yeah. I'm not saying that that's anybody else's decision. But keep in mind, if you're, if you're newly sober and you're interacting with people, I didn't realize that other people were high or drunk. Like, <laughs> like it just – sometimes you find out later like, oh, whoops. So those encounters, it can be tricky um, and so having another sober, I call them bunnies because every time I say buddy, it always goes really fast. I'm like, sober bunny. And like, yes, always bring a sober bunny with you. Um, but having a a friend that's there or or two or whatever, like that's – it's super helpful to like calibrate because if you're interacting with people in those spaces and they might not be – they might – it's not like they're slurring their speech or like their nose is covered in white. Like it's not going to be obvious. But I've had experiences where I was building friendships and relationships with people over time and not realizing that they were absolutely – they didn't remember a lot of our conversations. Mm. And I was shocked. And then I was like, oh, that's right. They don't have to play by AA rules. And so it helped me to know like what my sober family, my – you know my queerdo family and understanding that those that 
that are in both of those those little circles like that's rare and really celebrate those things and um and again ask people to hang out with you and then don't have sex with them like it's, i mean unless unless that's fine by you that's fine Damn, but like taking notes <laughs> hey, 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 hey. you only have to take half the notes like just the first part but like you know in aa i learned how to have friends be friends with people that were attractive it was the first time ever. Hmm. I had like gone to a meeting and was handed a sheet of like 25 names of the hottest people I'd ever met <laughs> in daylight. <laughs> and um, I looked at this like, you're just handing this to me. Do you know how much work I would have had to do to like somehow get all these numbers? And a person looked at me. They're like, you can't fuck any of us. You know that, right? <laughs> and I looked at them. I was like, why would you? Really? You know, like, it was super funny. But it taught me that I could have friends and could be friends, uh, you know, could have friendships and could be friends with people, even if you're attracted to them. And you start to realize that, like, it's not just about rubbing bodies on bodies. It's actually intimacy is different mm-hmm. and it can have way more meaning. Um, and then you can go have sex with them. I don't care. But, like, the point is, like, don't limit yourself to just thinking about one way of interacting. Yeah. So I have this in my notes and i don't know how to make this segue because i don't know what it is so uh what 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 is it what is a double winner that's on the notes here what is what does it mean to be a double winner if you're comfortable talking about it <laughs> absolutely I threw it on after I had sent oh yeah uh, well i'm a gold star but i'm also a double winner okay wow. um a double winner is if you are in al-anon and aa oh. and i am most definitely a double winner and that can be a mind fuck in and of itself because like how sometimes you can't really figure out what you're supposed to do i'll give you an example okay yeah it's a personal example so my younger sibling um has a um was getting married and is marrying somebody who is uh of a different religious sect and uh had a minister in the family okay and I received, or somebody with my birth name received, um, a letter. I'm like, I don't know who this cat is, but it's not me, inviting me to this wedding. And I was living with a partner. It was only addressed to that person with my birth name. And so I was like, wow, no plus one. That seems very odd. Um, so I called up or I texted the sibling and, and I was like, look, you know, I'm just assuming We'll be there. I'm excited. And he and he said, oh, we made the decision that no, no unmarried people. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I said, well, then we'll just celebrate. He's like, oh, well, you know, we don't we're not allowing anyone with plus one at the reception. I was like, then we'll celebrate at the church where they were looking forward to it. Right. I knew exactly what was happening. I was just being an asshole. Um, (laughs) And. And he writes back, he's like, if you and your partner enter our, the church, it will ruin the most important day of my life. Oh, and I was like, oh, gauntlet throne. I see. And I spent some time because I didn't, like, you don't immediately respond. You always wait a little bit. And eventually I wrote back and I just said, look, it doesn't sound like that's a very safe place for either of us. Mm-hmm. And that's all I wrote. I didn't say anything one way or the other. This is where Al-Anon and AA conflict. Because, you know, I went to my my AA sponsor who was like, look, you got to love, show them what it's like, show them how to be compassionate and forgiving and and you should go. And 
then the Al-Anon's like, what the fuck, Chuck? That's not the name of the brother. <laughs> um, that doesn't sound safe. If you go, you're you're basically saying it's okay to do this, to treat you this way. And you're showing all of your other siblings that it's okay. Showing the world it's okay. And by the way, you live with somebody. Mm-hmm. Are they coming? Because that's, again, violent place for them to be. They were Jewish too. It was like, great. You know, like, let's just add more to this. Um, but on top of it, it was just like one after the other. It was like, what decision do you make? And in my family, I'd been estranged for 20 years. And it was a very difficult decision. And I chose not to go. And I'm very proud of that choice. Mm-hmm. But no one, this is not something that like, this is a scandal for a sibling to not go to the wedding. Yeah. But no one stood up for me. Yeah. And it really, it forced me to really look at my program and be honest and okay with them being exactly who they've always been and understanding that my parents were not going to stand up for me, even though they said they loved me, even though, you know, like all this other stuff. And my decision to not go, I haven't spoken to that sibling since. Mm-hmm. And it made me understand the power of Al Anon. Mm-hmm. And it broke my heart mm-hmm. because I knew I would never have the same relationships with my family anymore. That and once you realize that like I needed to separate from them. The distance between myself and my parents was pro- was pronounced. I did my nine step amends with my parents, and I honestly I didn't expect to ever see them again. Mm. I had said goodbye. They didn't know it, and um, I do not welcome relationships with siblings that can't honor me as I am. And it's hard because as somebody who got kicked out, you're always trying to get back in that club. But thank God I got kicked out of that club mm-hmm. because yeah. those those are people that really do have a lot of drinking, eating, you know, ego issues, like lots of stuff. And if I had been in sort of like acculturated further, maybe I would have ended up like that yeah. and really just thinking that a higher paycheck was, was going to be fine, you know. Well, it's like sort of a corollary to that whole thing of I wouldn't want to belong to an organization that would have me as a member. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, exactly. It is. And I got lucky that I got kicked out. If I hadn't been queer, I am queer. Not had. Well, yeah, I guess that all works out grammatically. Um, Is that uh, a gerund? Is that? (laughs) (laughs) No, but ooh, can we figure out? It's like like future perfect. Past, future, perfect. I'll, I'll show you my dangling participle later. It's fun. <laughs> oh, excellent. That's really hot. Um, so, <laughs> grammar jokes. Love it. Before we, before we go, if you have any, like, um, parting thoughts for especially queer people that, that, that think maybe some kind of recovery is something in their future. Um, yeah, I mean... It's not just the stuff you use or do that could be taking over your life. Think about like how you regard yourself and don't worry so much about what is like it's that block between you and your happy self or like your fully realized self. And it's the toughest thing you'll ever have to do, but it's also the most brave thing a human being could do Hmm. to like understand that you are imperfect in that you need help and go where it's warm. Like I said, 
find the people that really do love being alive mm-hmm. and 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 just stay closer to them. They'll welcome you in. That's the easiest thing. Like don't keep hounding them. That if they're not welcoming you in, then they're not cool enough for you. Mm-hmm. Like really, mm-hmm. just go go to the ones that really are there and they're rare. I would recommend going to like a if you as a queerdo go to a queer meeting, but go to a couple of them. And if no one asks you out, that's probably good. <laughs> um, You're going to get lots of digits, but you can only call to talk about. Well, <laughs> try three. They'll enjoy it more. Um, sorry. That's really funny to me. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the other thing is like, it's it's okay. It's slow and, you know, you're going to be all right. Um, the... If you think that you might have an unhealthy attachment to things um, that are keeping you from being yourself, then, you know, don't hate yourself for it. It's there's it's understood. Like as people who are not the, you know, most dominant in the world, like not the straight, white, middle class individual, like obviously you did the best you could with the resources you had so don't don't worry about like how you got there just know that that your version like you really are amazing and there's such an amazing world out there and all this potential and you have to get out of your own way so just let other people care for you or or let them buy you coffee or if you are uh, constantly letting people do that, then don't do that anymore. But um, <laughs> my one prayer that I use is, God, make it obvious. Because I, I have no decoder ring. I can't figure that shit out. Mm-hmm. So make it obvious. And then when it's really obvious, then you have to you just do it. And if you think that you are – that you something's not working in your life – Go inward, don't go outward. Like it's 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 something about you being okay with you and not about changing your clothes, your body, or like your location. Um try a meeting, you know, read the read some material. And again, it's not necessarily that any one solution is right. You you got it. You know what you need. And um just be, you know, be gentle with yourself. And um, we'll take care of you. Crowd surf, crowd surf the program. <laughs> Let us hold you up. Yeah. Well, Danny, thank you very, very much for being here. Really appreciate it. I, I, I love your energy. It's infectious and great, and I, I just really appreciate you. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So are we back? We're back. <laughs> We're back. We always go on these ridiculous breaks. Um, <laughs> we are here with Ms. Honey Bouquet. You might remember what episode was it, Dan? Fuck, oh. I should have looked that shit up before I started fucking talking. Um, uh, we did an early episode, uh, season one. Uh, we did episode on drag queens, and and Honey Bouquet put Kyle and I in drag, and it's so great to have you back. Thank you. It's good to be back. That was like, what was that like five years ago uh, or four? Yeah, for almost four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was a, it was a fairly early episode, and um, we just had our fourth birthday here. In April. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, that was way back in September 2017. Okay, uh, episode 30. Great. And yeah, this, this is like episode 230, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, 229 <laughs> or 230. Anyway, welcome back to the show. It's Thank so, you for having me. It's so great to see you. Yeah. So this is our recovery episode. So we're talking about people's journey and their, you know, 
lives and everything. And so just want to start first with just like basic biographical stuff. Like how do you identify gender, sexual orientation, pronouns, that kind of stuff? Okay. So um, I'm Miss Honey Bouquet. I am a uh, local drag queen here in Seattle. Uh, I've been doing it for like, oh, at least since like 2007-ish. I am, my pronouns are he, she, they, gay for sure. And I don't know what else was I supposed to say. It's great. You, okay. You're doing all the things. You're doing all the things. Gut slut, I believe. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very big gut slut, which is the name of my show, which thank God we get to, we're bringing that back in July at the lumber yard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love my big old beefy bears. <laughs> yep. Hashtag gut slut. I see it. I see it a lot on your channels. That's yes. great. Um, so yeah, let's, but maybe surprising to some people, given that you're a drag queen and in, in, in the bars and, and so forth, you are sober. Yes, I am sober. I have been. I actually just celebrated my uh, seventh year sober on April 29th. Congratulations! Thank you. And yeah, it's been a crazy, crazy journey. Do you want me just like yeah, yeah. Okay, Hit so us. let's do it. So yeah, so I. I, I guess I hit my bottom. Um, There's a laugh track. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> didn't Only even think about consent. Right? Yeah. Go for it. I didn't even think about that. No, I'm sorry. Um, um, yeah. So it was um, at the time I was hosting RuPaul's Drag Race viewing party at okay. Diesel. And it was every Monday night at that time because, you know, they at the be- you know, the beginning, they love to switch what night they were where they were showing that. And so it was the season that Ben De La Creme was on. Oh, okay. And it was actually the night that Ben got uh, eliminated. Mm-hmm. She was she had to lip sync for her life with Darian Lake and uh, she got sent home. And I uh, I mean, I always drink a lot, but I drink a lot that night. And uh yeah, I got a DUI on the way home. So I, I've told people like, if you're an alcoholic, like the best job to have is a drag being a drag queen because you never have to pay for your drinks. <laughs> like people are either buying them for you or the bartenders are giving them to you for free. And so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I had driven home, you know, under the influence for for years and a long drive. I mean, I live in Pierce County, so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was driving from Seattle all the way home. And uh, so, yeah, I got pulled over probably like, I don't know, four miles from home. I was getting off the freeway and I was still in my Miss Honey track. <laughs> I had this fabulous, uh, uh, you know, red spandex hot pants, these ripped fishnets. Nice. And uh, I had taken my wig off because, you know, it gets those wigs get hot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, still in face. And then I had this uh, tube top, spaghetti strap tube top that said smoking. So, <laughs> yeah, I was smoking for sure. And, uh, yeah, so I got pulled over and uh, and got arrested. And uh, it was, you know, I tell people, like, when I was getting the handcuffs put on, I felt, like, the most sense of calm that I had felt in a long time. Oh. And, uh it was, you know, I'd been struggling with uh, drinking. I mean, I've always been, I've always drank alcoholically, but my my drinking did not get out of control until probably six or so months earlier. For um, the way I look at alcoholism, a lot of a lot of uh, people get pushed over that edge through a traumatic event mm-hmm. or a series of traumatic events, and that's what happened to me. I had. 
my mother died the previous August, and then I got a new boss at work who I would describe as a uh, bipolar micromanaging narcissist. Okay. A, re- <laughs> a, a real cunt is what we say. Yes, right? yes, <laughs> yes. And so I, my drinking just just shot, what went to the next level. Uh-huh. And basically I was drinking a fifth of vodka every night. Yeah. And uh, I had quit drinking... It's probably like six or seven years before that. I, I'd taken a year off. I was like, you know, I, I kind of thought I might have had a drinking problem. But I'm like, this year, my New Year's resolution is not to drink. And mm. I went the whole year without drinking. Didn't struggle at all. Did it no problem. And then here I was where my drinking really was out of control. I wanted to stop and I couldn't. And I remember just being, having this sense of frustration mm. that um, I've done this before and you know, I can't string together like three days. Like I had this calendar at work where I was marking off if I, you know, how many days and I maybe three days I could string together. Mm. And if you're doing that, you're an alcoholic mm-hmm. because people who are not alcoholic do not keep track on their calendars, how many days they've gone <laughs> without drinking. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, um, when I got arrested, I, um, like I said, I just had this sense of calm and I knew that uh, I had to reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, I reached out to a friend who had been sober at that time for over 20 years. Uh-huh. And uh, so that started my uh, journey in recovery. Uh-huh. And so I um, I haven't had a drink since. Did you have... I have so many questions. First, I wanted to ask about, about the driving because yeah. I, I think a lot of people have the self-perception that they're good at driving when drinking. Yeah. Was that true for you? Did you... Did, did you think it was okay or were you aware that you were impaired and that it was dangerous? Because I was aware of it, especially it wasn't like every night that I knew I really shouldn't be driving. But like, like I would, there were many nights where I had to drive home. I call it in pirate mode where <laughs> I would have to like cover one eye because you would see two, you know, the lane lines, you'd see two of them. Yeah. And, you know, the night I got pulled over, I saw three that night, you know, holding <laughs> up. It didn't help. <sighs> but yeah. And, uh. You know, I would tell myself I wasn't going to drink or wasn't or wasn't going to drink too much that night. But, you know, I'm all the way in Seattle. Got to get back home. And yeah, it was like just really poor decisions, <laughs> really poor decisions. And I'm just I'm just lucky I didn't get in an accident and kill someone. Right. You know, it it, it, it easily could have happened. And I don't know how it didn't happen, but it totally could have happened. Yeah. Uh, and then another question came up for me. Did you did you have anybody express concern to you about your drinking? Like it, it sounds like you were sort of self monitoring and and doing some some thinking and weighing. But I, I, were there any outside influences saying like, "Hey, honey, you you need to get it together"? <laughs> you know, my my husband had had like had made comments here and there because <laughs> so you know. When I first moved up here, I never had alcohol in the house. Mm. You know, um, it was always I would drink when I would go out. And then we moved to this uh, house on Fox Island. We bought this house on Fox Island and uh, it had a bar. So if you've got a bar, you got to stock it with alcohol. Yeah, it's required. Yeah. <laughs> and so so we would get like my husband would go to the liquor store. This is back when they had the state liquor stores and, you know, got those really big bottles and he would get, you know, gin, vodka and rum. And so I would do, I would just go through them. I would start with the, with the rum, then go or vodka, then go to the rum and then go to the gin. And I would literally get through all the bottles in, I don't I mean, this is before my, my drinking, you know, took off. So it would probably be a few weeks, like, 
maybe three weeks. And my husband would not have had any. And he would go to make a drink and he would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I didn't even get one drink. Yeah. No, towards the end, though, I, uh, I, I knew it was getting bad when I was at work one morning. And uh, we had these gals from the second and third floor that would come down and get their tills in the morning from finance and then go up to their uh, desks. And so this one gal walked by and I was like, oh, hey, how's it going? And she said, hey. And she walked by and then she like came back and she's like, were you drinking last night? Mm. And I was like, yeah. She's like, I can smell it on your breath. Mm. And I was like, ooh, that's, that's, that's not good when people can start smelling the alcohol on your breath. You know, I was mm. fine. I wasn't, I wasn't impaired. Um, I wasn't hung over. That was the thing at the end. You know, I was drinking a fifth of vodka and I could go into work no problem. I yeah. was not. I didn't have a hangover or anything. So, but when that happened, it was like, I knew it was, it was getting bad. And yeah. again, I wanted to, I knew there was, I can remember one night just sitting in the kitchen. Cause I would drink after the family went to sleep. I was, uh, when I was drinking at home and I can remember standing in the kitchen knowing that like I had to stop. I just couldn't. Mm. I like, I knew I had to like never drink again. Mm. Oh, wow. Wow. So speaking of your recovery, then what did, what did you do? Did you go into a, a program or a rehab or uh, how did you decide what modality to go down? So um, I, I went into a recovery program that I'm still involved in. And then, you know, I got arrested and, uh, you know, I go before the judge the first time and uh, my blood alcohol was 0.198. Okay. And so because it was so high... I, my only option, I could either take the DUI um, or do a f- deferred prosecution. So um, I, I got an attorney. I have a, a friend of mine who works in the court at the city that I worked at at the time. I went to her and said, hey, who would you recommend for a DUI attorney? And so she recommended this person. So the first question the attorney asked is like, do you want to go to Canada again? <laughs> and I was like, yes. She's like, okay, well then we're going to have to do a deferred prosecution. <laughs> so uh, if you have a DUI, you, you can get into Canada, but it's a big process and you have to usually, you have to hire someone to take you through that process to be able to, to go into Canada. So yeah. I opted for the deferral. You have to smuggle yourself in somebody's <laughs> trunk. <There> you, <laughs> <have> to... <laughs> you probably could do that. <laughs> I, had to do the deferred prosecution. And so it's a five year process, technically only a two year process, but um, so you have to do outpatient for the first month. You have to do outpatient three days a week and you have to do a, you have to do AA. Hmm. They require you to do AA for two, uh, two times a week. And that's the same for the, for the, those two years, you have to do AA twice a week for those two years. Um, And then the, the outpatient, it goes to once a week for like after that first was it month or first three months it was three months the first three months you had to do do treat do outpatient treatment um three days a week then it went to once a week for like the next nine months and then another year of once a month Mm -hmm. so that was it for the first two years and if you make it through that then you don't have to go through uh you don't have to go to court again but you have to you know be good for the next three years like probation or yeah whatever, uh-huh. yeah and then after the after those five years the the dui doesn't show up on your record oh nice okay okay 
Um, and you're you're well you're well past that now. Though, I'm right? well past it. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. Oh, and, well, enjoy Canada, girl. <laughs> yes. I, you're a free woman. Now. <laughs> I know I am. Of course, the border's closed right now. But hey. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so I I, I do want to talk about the word recovery uh, and and what it means to you because some some schools of thought are like it's an always ongoing thing. There's no such thing as recovered. You're just yeah. at whatever phase of recovery you're in. Um. And I, I'm just wondering what's what's true for you. So for me, I will always say that I'm in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in in certain uh, recovery programs, there's a um, like you 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 never say the word recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's you know it's something that's totally up to the individual. I know um, I know that if I pick up a drink, I will I will start off right right where I left off. Uh-huh. Um, I've never you sound sure. I'm oh I'm a hundred percent like I know like I never wanted one drink mm-hmm. I never wanted that and for me the whole point was to uh, to get fucked up basically mm-hmm. so um, I don't I've never wanted to just sit there and have one drink I, I don't understand people that just have one drink or that don't finish a drink I I mm-hmm. don't get that mm-hmm. so um, I know that if I were to pick up a drink I would just go go right back at it yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and, and good for you for having that self awareness yeah. and 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 using that knowledge to 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 stay stay good. Uh, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah. And for me, for me, I don't want to go back to to that feeling of I can't stop because I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I. You know, if if I went back out, I don't know if I'd. Um, if I'd be able to stop again. And I, I just don't, I don't want that, that sense of powerlessness of not being able to, uh, to not drink. Yeah. Yeah. So same thing. Um, you know, I know that there are some people who are, um, in recovery and not necessarily from alcohol, but it could be from like meth or something. Um, they will go ahead. You know, I have, I know, a, a another queen who, um, has been in recovery from crystal meth and but they drink and they smoke pot and for me i wouldn't you know i've i would not smoke pot i mean i i smoked pot was never a problem for me um you know if i'm outside the club and someone had offered me pot i would i would partake but um it wasn't a problem but my i have this fear that if i would if i were to smoke pot it would like take my guard down and i would be like oh i can have I can have a drink. So I don't, I don't do pot yeah. either. How about like cigarettes? Where's that on your, your world? So, um, cigarettes, um, I've been good lately. So when I, <laughs> uh, it was very much a part of my character and I, I, uh, I, um, I would smoke when I did drag, I, I smoked. And so I can't remember the last time I, I did, but, um, I haven't been able to smoke in bars for yeah, a while. No, <laughs> no, no. D- cigarettes are lots of things can be addictions. It's just which one's going to, uh, cause you to harm yourself or others, uh, yeah. more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's, what was the phrase you were using yesterday? Uh, um, not risk management, but um, harm, reduction. harm reduction. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, like p- kind of pick your poison. Yeah. 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 <laughs> in a way. yeah. 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 Um, let's let's talk about Honey Bouquet. I'm I'm super interested in what impacts you've seen to the character post recovery, not post recovery, but yeah. during recovery. How's that? How's that changed her? Uh, I, that was one thing I was worried about. So you know, when 
I was having these conversations about, you know, knowing I needed to stop. I would like, you know, am I, is Miss Honey, am I, am I still going to be funny mm-hmm. doing drag? And uh, uh, what's it going to be like? Um, and, it, you know, there really hasn't been any, any change. You know, I, so when I was doing, uh, hosting the RuPaul's Drag Race when this happened, and so this was like, you know, they were getting down to the final three. So that means I had four more episodes to do. So the next, so I, you know, I got pulled over that Monday night for DUI and the next Monday, you know, I, I'm going to, I made a commitment. I'm going to, you know, be there to host the the viewing party. So, um, I was back in the bar the next, uh, the next Monday, but I basically, uh, told everybody, like if people were offering me drinks, like they normally did, mm-hmm. I would be like, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I can't, I can't have, uh, I can't drink anymore. Got a DUI and all this stuff. And so, uh, within, within a week you were saying that. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's really great. Yeah. I, I knew I, I, for me, I had to just be honest with people mm-hmm. and I just had to let them know, Hey, you know, thank you. But in, you know, I'll do a diet Coke. And it took a while for people to remember that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, even today, every once in a while, I'll have someone, hey, can I get you, can I get you a drink? And they're like, oh, wait, Diet Coke. So mm-hmm. um, it took a while. But for me, it just had to, I had to just be honest about myself. That I mean, that was the whole thing about being honest with myself that I was an alcoholic and that I needed help. Um, it, it's that honesty. Mm-hmm. And so I I started out doing that just so I uh, I could maintain my sobriety. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I, I know, I know how much shame there is for a lot of people around like their alcoholism and how they find it embarrassing and they don't want to tell people. And that secrecy then sort of fuels it. Yeah. Ways. And 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 had you had you not been able to tell people that's still going to bars, it's going to be you know it would have been really challenging. So that's really really cool. I think more people, ideally, just the more people that are upfront about it. And honest with the people about their, you know, that I'm an alcoholic, I can't have a drink, but I sure would love a Diet Coke. Yeah. Um, it normalizes it in a way that, like, it's not shameful. You know, yeah. there's nothing shameful about, like, realizing you have a problem and doing something to fix it, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That's actually something to be very proud of, I think. Well, you know, there, when, uh, you know, when I was having those conversations with myself, another thing was, like, am I going to have fun? Because so much, a lot of gay culture, is around partying you know you know not so much uh you know now but you know back in the day the gay bar was where you could go and be yourself and be free and so i think that's just kind of you know we a lot of people the bar is still the place to go and hang out with people and uh um you know i just I remember having this feeling like, am I going to have fun anymore if I'm not drinking? And what are people going to think about me when uh, I'm not drinking? I, I, I had this fear that, uh, I might feel pressure from other people Sure. and I didn't experience any of that. I thought people were like, Oh, come on, you can have a drink. And no one ever said that to me when I was, up, when I just told people that, Hey, I'm an alcoholic, I can't drink. Um, everyone respected that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask because gay culture and partying is like a, a, a thing and you now as a sober person hang out with a fuck ton of drunk queers. <laughs> like, uh, ha, ha, have your have your ideas or, or feelings about the community changed? Um, do you do you feel 
has your relationship to the queer community changed as a result of your sobriety i guess is is what i'm trying to get to i wouldn't say so i uh i definitely look at um drunk people differently okay. i guess i should say you know it, for me it's just a good moment like oh god i was probably like that you know <laughs> that was me you know b- seeing people get drunk doesn't bother me mm. um sometimes it's sometimes it's funny sometimes it's annoying as fuck mm. you know i remember i was driving jackie Howe. i was giving her a ride home and uh, a friend of hers that was hanging out was like totally drunk and just annoying the fuck out of me and i'm like if this wasn't Jackie Hell in the car and you didn't know her, your ass would be out walking because you're annoying as fuck right now. <laughs> your t-shirt is amazing too, by the way. It's ja- Jackie Hell. Uh, it's her face that she's like licking cream off of a corn dog, maybe. It's mayonnaise. Mayo? Okay. Yeah, she dips. Ma- she dips it in mayonnaise, and yeah, that's wonderful. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I still go um to bear circuit parties so i go to ibc every year i've been doing that um i've started going to tbru Um, what's that what's that one texas bear roundup okay and that's a big one like i the only one i had been to was uh ibc which is in palm springs international bear convergence Mm -hmm. and uh that's the only one i'd been to and my friends were like you need to go to to tbru and so um that one probably has three times the amount of people and uh that's when it was like, damn, I wish I had known about this before I stopped drinking because they have they have a hospitality suite where it's all you can drink alcohol, all you can drink alcohol yeah. um, at that. And that's like Thursday, Friday, uh, Saturday night. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Missed out on it. <laughs> to be fair, the drinks at Diesel are basically all you can drink also in oh, just one, in one drink. Those <laughs> are so bad. Yeah, you know, my... Uh, my husband is he does not have a problem with alcohol at all <laughs> and uh there i've only seen him drunk a couple of times and uh one time was was at diesel yeah, yeah. We, we we started out at cc's and i think he had a drink and a half and then we go and he get got another i'm like you need to be careful because these are strong and yeah. you do not drink yeah do yeah. you uh does that bar in your house still have bottles in it well we don't so we moved we live in a new house and we don't have a bar but we still have alcohol in the house we've had you know when when, uh i stopped drinking there was still alcohol in the house but um you know it's funny my my husband just does not drink he i mean he does but he does not i mean it's definitely not like me and like you know because i'm someone if you've got alcohol if you've bought alcohol and it's in the house you should drink it you know Mm -hmm. and uh there's he bought like you know a small bottle of bombay sapphire gin and that bitch has been in our pantry for like three years and it has not been opened yet there's the um lucille blue it's like once you once you crack the seal you have to drink it before it goes bad right yeah exactly (laughs) if your bottles have dust on them you might not be an alcoholic yeah exactly yes yes exactly um yeah, uh, so a, a quick pivot. Uh, one of the questions: uh, Do you think there's a right way to get and stay sober? No, I don't think there's one way. I think people can. Um, you have to do what works for you. Um, you know, I. Uh, so Bacon Strip is actually doing a show um, for Pride Pure Seattle. Uh, approached us about doing. They wanted to do a Pride show, and they approached bacon strip about uh 
doing something. And so we're actually doing that. And I, I've heard, I actually know a couple of people that are involved with Pure Seattle. I've known them for a few years, but I never really fully understood what Pure Seattle was. Mm-hmm. Uh, r- real quick, uh, can you explain Bacon Strip? We have a lot of listeners okay. out, out, <laughs> all over the place. So, Bacon Strip is a monthly drag variety show. And it was started by Silvio Stay For More mm-hmm. here in Seattle. And uh, I started with Bacon Strip, I want to say in like 2008 or 2009, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And uh, I was just a cast member. And then she eventually asked me to co-host with her. So I've been co-hosting probably since 2010. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a monthly variety drag show. And Sylvia comes up with... or one of us um we kind of brainstorm but sylvie comes up with most of them comes up with a a theme and she asks people to do a drag number based on that theme it is um irreverent um it's uh not work friendly Mm -hmm. um it's um it's more it can be very avant-garde um, but there has to be like some sort of twist. Like if, if you, you know, if Sylvie asks you to, you know, perform in the show, you better not just do some pop song straightforward. You better do something that that's twisted yeah. with it. Unless you're prepared to also be painting yourself black with a paint roller. I think somebody did that. Yes. Time. Oh, was that, uh, that was Coochie Banaka. Yeah. yeah. She was. So we, a few years, probably like seven years ago, we started the Miss Bacon strip pageant. Okay. Which is an unpageant. And so, yeah, the people that have won have done some twisted stuff. So, Coochie Banaka, she was, uh, she was Miss Bacon Strip one year. Actually, the very first Miss Bacon Strip was Jinx Monsoon. Oh, wow. And that was, uh, like right before she went and recorded the show. And, uh, yeah, but, um, so everyone's done something. I think, I think, actually, I think Jinx probably did the most, like, straightforward number. Everybody else has had some pretty crazy stuff. Yeah. So, um, and it's at the lumber yard in West Seattle. That's where, yeah, we're going to be starting. It's going to start in August. We'll be starting back live shows Mm -hmm. and at the lumber yard. We've been at, when I started, it was at rebar. Then we moved to, uh, what was it? Chop suey for like a couple of shows and that did not work out. Mm. And then we uh, went to Broadway Grill and it closed. So then we were at Theater of Jackson for a while. And then Sylvia bought a bar, the Palace Theater, and then COVID happened. And so that closed. So wow. now we're at Lumberyard. So yeah. we're making a journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the earth is healing. The drag queens will be out and... and yeah. And, <laughs> You'll have you'll have crowds any day now. I, I'm I'm sure things will be back to normal before we know it. It's just happening so fast. What should I ask? What didn't I ask? Um. Well, you, the, so the last question you asked about it. Oh, because I was talking about Pure Seattle. Mm-hmm. So one of the things um, I like about Pure Seattle is um, it's very individual focused. Mm-hmm. So so basically, they have you can do. Uh, work with a peer counselor so it's someone who has the the same uh, addiction or issue that that you do so if you're an alcoholic it's going to be someone who has that same issue or crystal meth or I don't know if they do eating or what but um, it's someone that has that same issue and um, they basically work with you and show you what what's out there basically Mm -hmm. to help you um, with your recovery and it's not they're not 
I don't think they necessarily preach abstinence, which like I said, I'm, I'm someone who believes in abstinence. Yeah. Um, As opposed to like managed moderation or yeah, one yeah. Of those kinds of programs. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and if that works for you, great. Like, like that's awesome. Um, for me, I just, I found what works for me. And so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sticking with it. But um, I think people, I think people should try what's out there. You know, try. Um, I know, I know. With twelve-step programs, a lot of people have an issue. Um, there's too much God. One of the issues that I have with twelve-step is not enough uh, acknowledgement and uh, dealing with trauma. I think a lot of addiction, any any sort of compulsive behavior, stems from trauma, and I think as gay um, or LGBTQ, the whole queer community. I think a lot of queer people struggle with some form of compulsive behavior due to trauma that a lot of us experienced in childhood. Just existing as trauma. Yeah, if, yeah. If you're queer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, um, I think that's something that a lot of people you know struggle with is is dealing with that trauma acknowledging it and then dealing with it yeah miss honey bouquet thank you so much for being here again i really appreciate it it's so great to see you yeah thank you for having me uh, if people out there want to know more about you catch up with you see your socials that kind of stuff where sh where should they go what should they do so i'm I'm because I'm an older queen. I pretty much just stick with Facebook and uh, and Instagram, and it's uh, Honey Bucket, but pronounced Bouquet mm -hmm. um, on uh, Facebook, and then it's Ms. Honey Bouquet or Ms. Honey Bucket, and that's M I Z Z on Instagram. Okay, awesome. Hopefully, right. we'll see you at the lumberyard in August. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> Thanks again. All right, thank you. This is the part where Mike and Kyle take a break. So are we back? We're back. <laughs> We're back. <laughs> it works on you too. <laughs> it does. We're going to do our gayest and straightest. We're going to do our gayest and straightest, but first, our website is gayishpodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at gayishpodcast and connect with us and listeners in our Facebook group at the slash groups slash gayishpodcast and on the gayish Discord server. Yeah. Our hotline, you can send us text messages or leave us voicemails is 5855-GAYISH. That's 585-542-9474. Standard rate supply. Our email is gayishpodcast at gmail.com. And our physical mailing address is post office box 19882, Seattle, Washington, 98109. Um, yeah. Now do you want to do our gayest and straightest? Yeah, okay. Let's do our gayest and straightest. Um, <laughs> you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. So the gayest thing about me this week, I went to a gay bar. And normally that wouldn't be like... <laughs> a, that wouldn't count. That normally. wouldn't count. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's a... there's. Um, I'm fully vaccinated now, and that's weird to say. And oh, the term is max fax. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Stop trying to make fetch happen, fucking dad. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, there's a bar here in town that is. Uh, I'm really intrigued by it. Uh, they require proof of vaccination to go in, and that's. Um, I don't know. It's it's pretty great to be in a space and get to mingle without masks on and potentially make out with strangers. Although I didn't, but I wanted to. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. I think it's interesting. the The straightest thing about me this week uh, it was was <laughs> was going to the gym 
and then driving all over town in my gross tank top and then having you say um, get swole bro when i said i was on my way to the gym <laughs> yeah you swung by my place to pick something you swung by daddy's work pick something up swung by my house pick something up yeah and then uh i told you to get swole bro yeah i was disgusting too oh man um anyway yeah <laughs> i didn't mind uh, <laughs> how about you uh so my gayest this week uh yesterday morning i got to be interviewed for the fruit bowl podcast uh it's another seattle based podcast uh david quantic does and uh the the whole premise of it is sort of cataloging or or capturing uh queer stories about sex and learning about sex and first sexual experiences and 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 most embarrassing sexual experiences and things like that and uh, it was really fun um lots of really good he, i think it's for season three i think he's on now and oh, wow. he's just getting started now that I, I was his he said uh i popped his post-covid cherry for recording again you're so. a giver dan i i am i try <laughs> uh and then my straightest thing this week uh i think has got to be that last night while mike was out at a gay bar mm-hmm not making out with random boys uh i was at daddy's house sitting on the floor playing scrabble yeah 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 and beating him there is twice (laughs) (laughs) well maybe okay i think a quiet a quiet board game night at home just the two of you is pretty is pretty that's pretty hetero pretty hetero (laughs) yeah yeah um i'm this has probably already been the longest episode ever so we're not going to do a listener's gayest the straightest uh special thank you to miss honey bouquet danny and your boyfriend bobby um for telling their stories and then of course as always a big 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 thank you to our super gap bridgers but i'm not gonna say you because only kyle gets to fuck up your names um (laughs) uh, we'll we'll do the whole list um next time uh, from the CNN Javi studio, I'm Mike Johnson. And I'm fucking Dan. Yep. Be butch, be fabulous, be you. See you next week. me to refer to you uh bobby just bobby yeah just bobby's fine dan i mean yeah please feel free to make the connection between dan and i okay boyfriend bobby i think is how i finally landed on calling you yeah after a whole series of other mr fister and (laughs) (laughs) i was like you you could be fucking dan and i could be fisting dan (laughs) (laughs) 